Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll read the text. And then when we've finished, we'll join our voices in saying, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to open our eyes to see great things from his word today. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the offering of Jesus, the new and living way that he opened for us into your very presence. Now, may we as your people come boldly before the throne of grace. Lord, remind us of the confidence that is ours, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. Help us to receive your word with that confidence. Help us to ask for help in time of need because of that confidence. Lord, help us to live every moment of every day in your presence, drawing near, because of that confidence. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're beginning a series this morning called Rhythms. And um, just to clarify a couple things, if, if you see that right there and that little background going on, and you're thinking that means we're going to talk about what happens on those drums back there every Sunday... Or maybe about like what the difference between a 4-4 and a 6-8 time signature is, and we're going to nerd out on some music stuff together, then you're, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed this morning, okay? Um, because when we talk about rhythms at Gospel Grace, we're, we're actually not going to be talking about beats and drums, although that, that would be fun, let's just be honest, okay? Um, we're going to be talking about ordinary but essential practices, that we as a church devote ourselves to on the path of following Jesus. That's what we mean by rhythms. Ordinary but essential practices that we as a church want to devote ourselves to on the path of following Jesus. Some might call this uh, maybe like a discipleship pathway, steps to growth 
in grace. We call it our rhythms. And our hope is that as we work through these practices this year, that they're actually going to help us. That they'll help you locate where you're at in your journey of faith. And then also give you some next steps as you seek to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. So today, we're going to look at our first rhythm together. And it's the rhythm, gather in worship. Gather in worship. Now, what does that mean? You actually need to take a moment to, to define some terms together because I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, when someone uses the word worship nowadays, they can mean a whole bunch of different things. Okay? Like, I mean, they, they could be talking about congregational singing, right? Like, wow, that worship was great, right? Or they, they could even just be talking about like a service. Like, are you coming to worship tomorrow? Right? They, they, they could be talking about an experience that they had with God that was significant. They, they could even be talking like a genre of music. Right? Let, let me share this sick worship playlist with you. Right? <laughs> I don't know if those two words go together very well, but it's probably been said somewhere, right? I actually, uh, I came across an article this last week that that kind of pokes fun at some of the ways that Christians throw that word worship around. Um, I wonder if you've heard some of these before. Okay? I, I know I have. Okay? How about this one? Josh Lankford did the worship today. Yes. But was he the only one? Right? Um, how about this one? I don't know, the worship just wasn't very good today. Like, really? Oh, like, like what part? Like the musicians were off or like your heart wasn't fully engaged in praising your creator, okay? I don't know if you think these things, but sometimes these are the things that go through my mind when I hear these. Or maybe, maybe this one, like, oh man, I love it when Jenny is on stage on the team. She is a real worshiper. Which, like, Probably what they mean is that she's like really physically expressive, right? She shows it on her face. She shows it with her hands. But let's be honest, whether or not she's a real worshiper probably is going to involve a few more questions, right, about her heart and what's really going on inside. Or this one, I, I, don't, I do not know what to say when someone says this to me. I really love your worship. I love your worship too, <laughs> right? Like, uh, we, we, uh, we have some work to do this morning, don't we? What does it mean to gather in worship and what part does that have in the essential practices of the Christian life? Let's get started together. Because that's what I actually believe the text that we just read helps us to understand today. So when you look down at this text, when you heard it read, I want you to see how this text is all about worship. I mean, look at the words that are there. Words like enter the holy places, the house of God, let us draw near, meet together. 
This passage is all about helping Christians understand worship. It's all about what worship should look like and the place that it should have in the life of a Christian. So today, as we look at this text, I want to answer this question. What truths can guide us as we practice this rhythm of gathering together in worship? I think we find three in our text today. I'm going to give them to you right at the front, and then we're going to work through each one, one by one. Here's the three truths about worship that we see in our text today. The first is this, God's initiative. Secondly, our response. And then finally, mutual ministry. Let's look at that first one together. What truths can guide us as we practice this rhythm of gathering in worship? The first one is this, God's initiative. Worship starts with God. Amen? I mean, that truth is right at the forefront of our text. Did you see it? Our text starts this way in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have. That statement right there is a statement of God's initiative. Because what follows it is not a list of what we can find in ourselves or what we can do, but instead of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Worship doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And that's how it's always been in God's world. I mean, think back to the very beginning of our Bibles. How does the story of Scripture open in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, Adam. Right? In the beginning, there was a man named Adam and a woman named Eve and, oh no, my friends, in the beginning, God. The opening act of human history is an act of God's initiative. And there's one theme that overarches God's initiative. It's his glory. That echoes throughout the pages of scripture. The heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah, he's, he's welcomed into a scene around the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's probably one of the most amazing scenes of worship in the Old Testament. And Isaiah falls on his face and echoing throughout the room are these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Colossians chapter 1, all things were created by him and for him. You see, there's a sense in which worship exists because God exists. You know, here at Gospel Grace, we actually do something every week as a way to remember that truth, that worship starts with God. We did it today. It's part of what we call liturgy, okay? Have you ever heard that word before? That sounds like a really technical term, and if you thought that, you'd be right, okay? It's a, uh, it's a technical church term. It's, it's simply put, it means the work that God's people do in worshiping him for their good, okay? And part of our liturgy here at Gospel Grace is every Sunday, we start our service with, with what's called the call 
to worship. Have you ever noticed that before? How many of you have heard us say, for our call to worship this morning? None of you have heard that before. Okay, all right. I, I'm here every Sunday, so I know it happens because it comes out of my mouth. So just think with me. I know I wasn't doing it this morning, okay? How many of you have heard me say, for our call to worship this morning? How many of you have heard? Thank you so much. All right. All right. Today, today is about gathering and worship, and I'm going to give you a hint of where we're going, okay? Uh, worship's not a spectator sport, okay? So we're in this together, so we can participate. Anyways, now that we've got that out of the way, um, we start our services with this, uh, with this call to worship. Have you ever thought about what that is? You ever thought about what that is? Like, what's going on there? I'll give you a hint. It, it's not that one of our pastors or worship leaders tries to come up with just the right inspirational words that are going to sam- somehow, like, just get us going in worship. I just light it up. Grab the mic. I've got something to say. I'm going to call you to worship. No, it's actually that God calls us to worship him. You see, every week when you hear the call to worship, I want you to think of it as an invitation from your creator, God, to gather around his word that he has spoken to us and do what we were made to do, to worship him. Worship is about God's initiative. He calls us to worship him. And in our text today, the writer of Hebrews, he actually has a call to worship of his own. That's what we see in verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Okay, now there is a lot there, right? And there is a lot there that would have been way more familiar to the original audience and how they thought about worship and participated in worship than what you and I experience today, right? I mean, did you see it? There, there's talk of blood in this chapter. There's a high priest. There's a curtain. Later on as we read, there's, there's sprinkling and washing and sacrifices are referred to. What does all of this have to do with us today? Well, here's what I think it has to do with us. All of that right there is about the way that God provided for sinful people to approach him. That, that's what all of it's about. So don't, don't get lost in all of the details of things that you don't experience. Instead, see all of it as the way that God had provided for sinful people to approach him in worship. It all started way back in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. God created them and everything else completely perfect, right? And everything was amazing until it wasn't. When Adam and Eve turned from God to their own way. It was the first sin. It was the first act of rebellion against the creator. And because of that, God had every right to put Adam and Eve to death. But instead, what does he do? He comes to them, right? 
he comes to them with a way of forgiveness. And he sacrifices an animal in their place and then takes the skins of it and covers them with it. And God provided the first sacrifice for sins. And then along the way, as we continue reading the Old Testament, that first sacrifice actually becomes a pattern for a whole system of altars and temples and sacrifices and offerings and a priesthood. And here's what I want you to see about all of it. That whole system was a gift from God. Have you ever thought about that? The whole sacrificial system was a gracious gift to sinful people who deserved nothing but to be cut off from God's presence, but instead now have a way to still approach him like they were meant to do. And the climax of that whole system, it culminated on one day every year. Do you remember the day? It was the day called the Day of Atonement, where one day per year, one priest could offer one sacrifice on behalf of all the people. He would take that blood from that sacrifice into an area of the temple that was set off from the whole rest. It was called the holy place because it was the place where God's presence was manifest on the earth. Because of the sin of man, that that whole section had actually be separated off from everything else, the most holy place. And it was separated by a giant curtain, thick, dark curtain that separated man from God. And the only time anyone could go in to the presence of God was one day when one person with one offering for their sin and the sins of the people could go in. And that was how God's people could approach him in the Old Testament. Man, would you, would you just think about that for a second? Only from a distance, only through strictly observing sacrifices and laws, and only through p- priests, and only with fear and trembling. But then, God sent the Son, Jesus, didn't he? And with him, he brought something new and incredible. He brings the ability to have confidence to enter the presence of God. I mean, look down at your Bibles. It is, it's plain as day. Since we have confidence to enter that holy place that was once quadranted off. Now, would you just think about that for a second? Because we, we could just read over that like it's, like it's normal, like it's an afterthought. But that thought right there would have been absolutely ludicrous to a worshiper of God before Jesus came, right? Like confidence to enter the holy places. No way. Confidence to enter the holy places and die, yes. Confidence to enter the holy places to draw near to the presence of God, never. But would you catch this? Because of Jesus, that's exactly what God is offering to you and me today. Confidence to enter the very presence of God. 
Like, there should be something in every single Christian that wells up and just says, like, how did I get here? Right? I mean, like, what, what am I doing here? Because I don't know if you've noticed this. It's not just Adam and Eve and then the people in the Old Testament who sinned and turned away from God, right? I mean, how many of us are sinners? All of us have broken God's law and all of us deserve to be kept out of the presence of God. How on earth did we get here, right? You know, a few months ago, I, uh, I had one of those how did I get here moments. Hey, my, my son Andrew and I, we, uh, we got to go to a Utah jazz game. And it was, uh, it was awesome, okay? One of my friends had tickets that he wasn't going to be able to use, and so he called me up, and he asked me if I wanted him. And I said, I said, sure. And then he started to tell me that they, they weren't just any tickets. Um, they were just a few rows back from the court. So here's me and Andrew, a few rows back from the court. Absolutely amazing, Okay. Not only that, um, the tickets came with access to an all-you-can-eat buffet with dinner, desserts, snacks, and fountain drinks for the whole night. We could just come and go as we please. And I'll have you know, we did. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. And, you know, actually, as I was looking through uh, the pictures and videos from that night, um, I can hear myself laughing in the background. <laughs> like I'm, I, I did one shot where I, I showed Andrew eating some dessert and then I panned across the court and I was like, what is this? <laughs> right? Like how, how did I get here? Right? Do you see this? Every single child of God who's put their trust in Jesus Christ should have that same thought too when they consider the confidence they have to enter the holy places and be near the presence of God. How did we get here? But if you'll let me, I want to actually take it one step further, okay? I'm going to take it one step further because I, I knew how I got there, okay? My friend gave me tickets, okay? I want you to imagine something else with me. Like, like Let's create a little scenario, Okay? Let's just say that during that game, uh, one of the jazz players gets hurt, right? And he can't go back into the game. It's Keontae Murray or Keontae George. I'm a huge Utah jazz fan, <laughs> as you can tell. <laughs> Keontae George, he's, uh, he's 6'4", he's grabbing his leg, he's on the ground. There's a timeout. And Coach Hardy, he, he starts trying to like, figure out what he's going to do. He's wringing his hands until all of a sudden his, his eyes begin to move up into the stands. And they lock eyes with mine. <laughs> six foot four inches tall. Six foot four. His obvious thought is, he's got what it takes. Okay. So I like climb over people. I get down there on the court. I grab a jersey. I throw it on. I high five the coach. I grab an inbound pass. I dribble down and I dunk on their faces. Okay. Now, okay. Now what am I thinking? How did I get here? Right? <laughs> right? I mean, on one side, the seats, the tickets, all of that. How did I get here? But then the last part of that story is absolutely unbelievable, right? Now, would you catch this, my friends? Because as, 
as Christians, this is where fuel for our worship comes from, with this question right here. How did we get access to the holy places? How is it that we can gather and have the very presence of the holy God among us? There is only one answer. Jesus Christ. And you and I have a better chance of getting called down to the court to play with the Utah Jazz than of going into the holy places apart from Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And how does that happen? Because God sent Jesus as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins to die on the cross. The text tells us when, when that happened, Jesus opened that curtain that separated man from the presence of God. It's right in our text, verse 20. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, and what's the next phrase? Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, there there were several amazing things that happened. Like several literal, historically recorded events that happened the night that Jesus died. Do you know about these? Hey, like earthquakes, the sun was darkened, dead people came back to life, miracles, right? But I think one of the most significant of them all was what happened in the temple that night when that huge curtain that separated off God's presence from sinful man was torn from top to bottom. Now, why is that so significant? What did that mean? Well, in that moment, here's what God was saying. God was saying, because Jesus' flesh was torn apart on the cross, what separates me from you is torn apart too. So come in. I think that's what it's going on when it says that is through his flesh. It's not just that a, that a piece of fabric tore. It's that Jesus was torn apart. And when he was torn apart, access into the presence of God was opened for us. Oh, my friends. Would you catch what the text is saying for you today? The text says... We have confidence. Think about that for a second. That means, that means it's not like we have more confidence or less confidence, right? There's, there's not a scale of confidence. You just have it or you don't. Or you could say it this way. You remember it or you forget it, you believe it, or you don't. Why? Because we had a great day and we're really feeling it in worship. That, that's why we have confidence. Because we fought really hard against sin this week and we didn't give in, so we have confidence. Because we've looked at all that we've done to keep up with whatever discipline or religious activity that we're supposed to do. Oh no, my friends, that is not how it works. But think about it. That doesn't stop whole religious systems being built 
on people having to do something to feel confident in their relationship with God, right? God's word has a much better way, a new and living way, y'all. Those who come to faith in Jesus Christ have confidence because of the initiative of God in making a way for sinners to enter his very presence. That initiative started in the Old Testament with sacrifices and offerings, and it culminated in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And my friend, that confidence that any one of us can have today is not based on anything that we can do. It's not based on completing some quest of devotion. It's not based on temple work or feeling worthy enough. It's not based on making sure that our good works outweigh our bad. It's based on the initiative of God in sending Jesus Christ as the once for all sacrifice for sin. And that's the first truth that our text shows us to guide our practice of gathering and worship. God's initiative. Worship is God's gift to us before it's ever our offering to him. But then the text goes on. And we see a second truth that can guide us as we gather in worship. Okay, so if we look at verse number 19, it starts out, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, how do we live? Verse number 22. Since we have confidence, 22, let us draw near. Okay, so the first thing we have to see is God's initiative, but then the next thing our text shows us is our response. Our response. Now, as I studied this text this week, I, I could not get away from how tightly and clearly structured this text is. Like, I'm a visual person. Also, I kind of dabble in grammar nerdery. So I, I took some time and I took out a piece of paper and I diagrammed this whole thing. And I drew it out. And you know what I saw? I saw that this is a tight structure. And it's as if the first section in verses 19 through 21 and then the second section in 22 through 25 are like this, this massive hinge where everything that God has done in his initiative hinges then to our response in worship. And the cue is, let us. Not let us. Okay, some of you vegans were like, yes, it is the cue. No, let us, okay, let us. So then, what is our response? Our response is we draw near. We draw near. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So in light of the confidence that Jesus has given to draw near, we should actually draw near. That, that's what it's saying here, okay? So like in light of the confidence that Jesus gives us to enter the holy places into the presence of God, we should enter the holy places to the presence of God actively from the core of who we are, from our hearts out into every moment of our life. My friends, the Christian life is one of responding to God's character and works in worship in all of life. And I think one of the ways that we can see this is as we start to look at the way the writer of Hebrews shows us the transition 
from worship before Jesus to worship after Jesus. Okay? So I think that's actually one of the major things that's going on in the book of Hebrews. What is this transition from worship before Jesus to worship after Jesus? I actually wrote a book about this on a sabbatical this last year, and it was really great. Um, it's a book called Engaging with God. And what it is is an unfolding story from Genesis through the Old Testament and then into the New all the way to Revelation of what worship looks like for the people of God. So how does God unfold the story of worship through the Bible from start to finish? It's a fascinating read. Okay? One of the things that David Peterson draws out in this book is that he draws out how in the Old Testament, the focus in worship was actually on specific times and places. So I want you to think about this for a second. Like, you went to a place as the center of your worship, right? The temple or the tabernacle. On certain times of the month, they would have these feast days or times of the year, and that feast would be the center of your worship. And through specific and rigid ways, you approached God. But then, when you come to the New Testament, the focus of worship actually shifts. And I think you can begin to see this, this shift happen as Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the question she asked? She asked a question about where people are supposed to worship, a place. Do you remember how Jesus answered? God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not only that, God's actually looking for worshipers. He wants to make you one. You see, the shift that takes place is that all of those times and places were actually pointing to something better. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that that something better is actually a someone better, right? It's Jesus. All these things pointed to him. In fact, actually, before our text today, in chapter 10, we read these words. They're going to be up on the screen. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered a single sacrifice for sins on the cross, right? He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, through Jesus, worship is no longer centered on times and places because those times and places had one main purpose, to point to Jesus. So then I want you to think about what this means for our worship. That means that, that our worship isn't like a light switch that we flip when we come in this building. I wonder if sometimes that's how you approach worship. You walk in this building and you you walk in, you're like, oh, there's the worship switch. Flip, turn it on. On your way out, don't forget to turn off the lights. And you go about the rest of your week. Worship's not about a place where we go and we need to feel like we are close to God. Worship is all of life. That's what this text is saying. Heart, 
all the way out to everything that we do all the time. I love how D.A. Carson puts this in his book, Worship by the Book. The church does not gather in worship on Sunday mornings and then engage in something different the rest of the week. New Testament worship is constant worship. Oh, my friends, when we relegate worship to certain times and places, or when we compartmentalize our lives to things that include God and exclude God, here's what we're doing. We're actually patterning our worship as if Jesus had not yet come. We're going backwards, right? Worship is for all the people of God at all times in all places. And it's not just what we do, but it's also who we are and what we want in our hearts. That's what Hebrews 10 is telling us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, because both our hearts and our bodies have been cleansed by the work of Jesus. So then in our worship, our question is not, did I show up at church? Our question is not, did I, did I learn something interesting theologically? Did we sing my favorite songs today? Did I give enough in the offering? Now the question is, in view of Jesus' work on the cross, does God have all of me? That's the question. That's the response of New Testament worship. Because of who God is, what he's done, how he's revealed himself, God hears all of me all the time and I draw near to you. And as the writer of Hebrews says this, he's, he's making this point that when we do that, when we personally pursue God, it's not meant to simply stay with us. It's actually meant to overflow in a public relationship with God. So if you consider these commands, let us draw near, let us hold fast our hope, let us consider one another, there's actually this, this flow that happens. Faith in God, our hope, which we remember and help other people remember, and our love. You see, God intends that his worship would overflow into a public relationship with God and with his people. So in light of Jesus' work on the cross, our worship is personal, but it's never supposed to be private. This, this entire passage here confronts that. And I know we all have this longing in our hearts that we just want like more God and me time. You know, I, I think that's good, okay? There's nothing wrong with having quiet space for you to seek the Lord. Jesus did it. He departed to be to desolate places, to be with the Father. But if we are constantly imagining, I could worship so much better if it weren't for the people, then we have a problem. Man, I couldn't, I couldn't worship today. There were so many distractions. Man, I used to be able to worship at Gospel Grace, but now it's so full. I just can't, I can't worship anymore. It's just like, eh. My friends, would you see in this text how much corporate language is just saturated? Since we have, let us, let us, let us, one another. God intends for his people's response to his revelation to happen as a community. God's people is a worshiping community. That's what he intends. 
And this is why we gather in worship, okay? So we're talking about gathering in worship. This is why we gather in worship, because there is something that happens when we are together that cannot happen when we're worshiping alone. And listen to this quote by Robert Rayburn. He gets right at it, okay? When there are a number of worshipers present, there is a participation in worship which is more intense than is the individual passion of any one of them when he's by himself. God has so created man that there are deeper delights and more intense inspiration in the worshiping congregation than in individual devotion. Wow. Would you just think about that for a second? Because I, I think you know what it means, right? I mean, think, I think you understand that concept. There's a difference in intensity between experiencing something with a group of people who share your excitement and passion and then experiencing it on your own, right? I mean, we feel it at political rallies. We get there and we're like, I think I used to believe this. Uh, probably skip that slide. That's out of order there. I think I used to believe this, but now, like, I really believe it. <laughs> right? Maybe you go to a sporting event. It's a little different being in the stadium, feeling the roar of fans, than it is watching it at home. Okay? I wasn't a huge college football fan. Then I moved into Knoxville, Tennessee. And all of a sudden, I found myself buying orange things. <laughs> I went to a stadium where 100,000 people all sing together. Rocky Top. And all of a sudden, you know what I was doing? I was singing too, okay? I mean, even going to like an opening night of a movie, right? The buzz, the excitement. Have you ever experienced that before? Somebody like, here's what I mean by that. Like, it's why no matter how good your personal listening setup is, like you've got your hipster turntable record player, you've got your Bose noise-canceling headphones that double as earmuffs, okay? <laughs> you might even already have an Apple Vision Pro, okay? There is nothing like being at a concert with a sold-out crowd of people and hearing your favorite band play live together, is there? Oh, my friends, would you hear this? Your personal times of worship may be sweet. And may they be more so as a result of our time in this text. But there are deeper delights that God intends that can only be found when you gather with the saints in worship which actually leads us to the last thing in our text this morning. So as we learn about what it means to gather and worship from this text, we see God's initiative, we see our response, and then finally, mutual ministry. Mutual ministry. Yes, worship is about God initiating the revelation of himself to us. Yes, Worship is about actively engaging with our whole hearts to respond to who God is and what he's done. And then as the people of God gather around that, mutual ministry takes place. And the reason that I say mutual ministry 
is because verse 23 reminds us that we need other people. Okay? I think that's part of what's going on in verse 23. We need other people. Okay, look at it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. We do not gather in worship because life is easy, do we? We gather in worship because life is hard and we need help holding fast to the confession of our hope. We don't gather in worship because we got life figured out and we show up to show God how good it's going. We gather in worship because we need forgiveness for our sins. We gather in worship because we need strength in our suffering. And in a very real way, when we come together as God's people, we are honestly admitting we are people who need help. We're people who need support. We're people who need accountability. We need hope. Now, I'm, I know it might not look like it when you just glance around this room, but there are difficulties and hardships in every one of the lives around you. Would you just for a second just look around? Okay, look around the room. I had a friend who, um, who used to say, most people are one question away from tears. One question about a job or a relationship or how it's going with one of their kids or an unknown outcome or a sickness or a bank account or an addiction, a struggle with sin or anxiety one question. It's all it takes to peel back what oftentimes looks so put together on the outside. And you know what comes out? That there are times in life when we are barely hanging on. That's why we gather and worship. To hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's not a feeling, okay? It's not like we're just gonna hold fast to the idea of hope. No, it's the truth of our confession of hope based on the fact that he who promised is faithful. Gathering in worship is a communal admission that God is a God of hope who keeps his promises. And when I've forgotten it or I'm not seeing it as clearly, there's someone else nearby to remind me of it. And in the times when we're struggling to see it, we need a brother and sister across the room singing about it to remind us of it too. We need a passage of scripture to be read by someone infused with the spirit of God to anchor our hearts in hope. We need to pray along with someone else who actually puts words into the emotions that we can't quite get out. We need to gather to help each other hold on to hope. You know, can I share something with you? It is a privilege and a joy to lead worship here every Sunday. But there are times as I'm getting ready for worship that I am not feeling it. Gone over the songs, looking at my notes, thinking about how I want to lead, just not feeling it. 
Maybe it's because my heart's distracted. Maybe I'm tired that morning. Maybe I'm struggling to believe that God is good to me personally on that day. You know, on on those days, there are some of you that I can count on to help me hold on to hope. Sometimes it happens during worship practice and we're singing and I'm reminded of the truth and my affections are warmed because I worshiped with other people. Then there's other times when after a service starts and I'm looking at you and there's some of you that I can count on. Like I, I know where you sit. I know what you're going through. And I see you singing truth believing it, helping me believe it. And it helps me hold on to hope. That's what God intends for the gathering. That we can count on each other to help us hold on to hope. Mutual ministry, because we need others. But also mutual ministry, because others need us too. Others need us to stir them up to love and good works. Look at verse 24. Let us, as we gather in worship, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So just like God has taken the initiative to pursue us with love and salvation, so we too should consider We should give careful, creative thought. Not just about how engaged we are with worship, but also about how to help those around us be engaged as well. Can you see that? It doesn't just say, consider how engaged you are. It says, consider one another to stir them up to love and good works. And I love how the text says it. It actually uses one of the more unique words in the Bible. It's that word stir up right there, okay? It's actually a word that oftentimes is used negatively, all right? Like provoke or incite or annoy, okay? And hopefully someone's face didn't just flash in front of your eyes right there, okay? But here it's used positively, okay? And when it's used positively, it has the idea of poking someone who's stuck in a comfortable place that they shouldn't be to inspire them to something better. That's what it means to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the mutual ministry that God intends to take place as we gather in worship. So what if, what if, when you came into the parking lot each week, or when you pulled up 700 or 13th, or you came down 7th, what if instead of your first thought being, Sure do hope there's a parking spot close by. I'm going to be parking by Pastor John's house, and he lives a half mile away. Okay? Boy, sure got to get in there before they close down coffee, because I didn't get mine this morning. Sure do hope I find a seat in worship that's not on the front row, because it's awkward, and John spits when he sings. Okay? What if instead of having our eyes all on us in worship, instead we opened them wide 
looking for someone to inspire to worship God with you? What if you thought as much about a conversation you were going to have on a Sunday morning as you did about where you're going to sit? That's what God intends. Eyes open worship, looking around for who we can inspire. Which, let's be honest, goes against how Christianity in America often portrays worship, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about? Like maybe it's, maybe it's a picture on social media. Maybe it's an ad in an email. Maybe it's a stock photo. Okay. How do they often show worship? Like if you Googled worship and you pulled up the images, how would they often show it? Well, they'd, they'd have to be someone like in this absolutely incredible location, right? I mean, they gotta be like at the edge of a mountain looking out over this grand vista. They gotta be like sitting in a field like this right here. They're just sitting, there it is, yeah, thank you. <laughs> sitting in a field, head down, eyes closed, Hands raised to the sky. It's even like a lens flare to communicate the presence of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and that is worship, okay? Now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Don't get me wrong. But there's, there's something the writer of Hebrews has in mind that's very different from that. Gathering and worship is, first of all, about being at the gathering, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but instead encouraging one another, having our eyes open to those around us. Who can I inspire? Who around me needs to be nudged into engaging more in what God made all of us to do? Because gathering in worship is about mutual ministry. And as I close, I, um, I want to share something that had a deep impact on me and how I lead worship. It was a pastor, and he was talking about helping his church re-engage after COVID-19 and all the lockdowns. I think it actually brings together everything we've been talking about. I want to share it with you. He said, worship is a verb, not a noun. He had a southern accent, too, so I can kind of hear it in my head. Okay? Worship isn't an event we attend. It's not a a video we watch. It's something we actively participate in. Worship is not a spectator sport. And isn't that what we've been talking about today? Gathering worship, it's, it's not about just showing up in the same room at the same time, watching something happen up front, feeling someone else's emotional energy, and then leaving to get on with our week. That's not worship, my friends. That's an event on a stage. And can I let, it, let you in on a secret? Do you know where the stage is at Gospel Grace? It's right here. You're sitting on it right now. You are sitting on the stage. You know what this is right here? It's just a platform. You know, as I've, as I've studied this week, I... I've actually been moved to even think about adjusting how I talk about this area up here. Because if we understand what it really means to gather in worship, then this isn't a stage up here with an audience out there. The stage is out here, and the audience is where? 
up there. That's what we do when we gather in worship. We gather together as worshipers, participating together, looking around, helping one another to be able to praise the audience of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the confidence that comes from his initiative in revealing himself in Jesus Christ, our response in worship is to draw near with all that we are and all that we have with a group of people who are doing the same for the glory of God and for mutual ministry and so much more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. May it be so here. We're going to take some time to, uh, to respond to God's word. Here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to just give you some space to be able to respond to the word. So I'm going to put a few questions up on the screen. Okay, you, could, you could look through these questions and then let them lead you into prayer. So use one or two of the following questions to guide a time of prayer. Perhaps you'd want to pray with maybe two or three people nearby. and Someone could could say, hey, let's play, pray through these things together. You could ask a question, answer it, and then go to the Lord in prayer. If you want to just pray on your own, let's take some time to go to the Lord together. That's as Pastor Lucas says, let's turn this place into a house of prayer, right?